James chapter 3, we'll look at the first 12 verses today. As a new father, I find myself far more interested in warning labels. In the past, I really wasn't all that concerned about warning labels. You know, I had a mother for that. But now that I'm a father, I've come to really appreciate and value the necessity of warnings. But no one gets that excited about warning labels, right? You don't open up your Christmas presents on Christmas morning and say, wow, I can't wait to read the warning label. And we've all seen those commercials for new medication. And they show someone who was once limited by a condition, but now that they have this new medication, they're running through the park, they're eating ice cream, they're walking their dog, life looks so wonderful, but how do those commercials end? with a long list of horrible side effects that completely kill the mood of the commercial. Warnings are necessary, but they're kind of a nuisance. Warnings are a necessary nuisance. I think sometimes that's our attitudes toward the warning passages in the Bible. We know that they are necessary and important for our Christian lives, but they kind of kill the mood. Right? They're kind of a nuisance, something we have to read to be safe, but they're really not all that exciting. No one's writing Proverbs 16, 18 in their Christmas cards, right? Be warned, pride comes before a fall. Merry Christmas. <laughs> we rather read about Jesus' miracles, about God's promises, about the great triumphs of the early church and the power of the Spirit, but... Like loving parents correct and warn their children to protect them, our Father in His Word warns and corrects us. And that's what we have in today's passage. We have warnings about our words. We have the longest section on human speech in the New Testament, and it's a string of warnings about the power and the danger of our words. James links together a series of illustrations about the sinfulness of speech, and he delivers them with a heavy-hitting punch. But like all of the warning passages in the Bible, they are meant to drive us back to the God who offers grace to sinful people and power to live lives that please him. So with that in mind, would you read with me James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. James writes, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is 
also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James gives us three warnings in this passage about our words, so we're just going to walk right through them. Warning number one, don't underestimate the power of your words. Although the tongue is very small, it has great power completely out of proportion to its size. And to make his point, James gives us two illustrations. You see the first one there in verse 3 about the bit in the horse. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. You see a horse, and you just have to kind of pause and stare. They're such beautiful, powerful, majestic animals. And they can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and run at speeds up to 30 miles an hour, and yet a 120-pound jockey can steer that horse at peak speed with a piece of metal in the horse's mouth no larger than a carrot. James gives us another illustration to make his point. Verse 4, take ships, for example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. The Harmony of the Seas is one of the world's largest cruise ships, and it's about the length of four football fields and weighs 226,000 gross tons. Yet a pilot can navigate it through harsh waters using a comparatively small rudder. And so it is with the tongue. Although it's so small, it has a lot to brag about. Verse 5, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Its power and influence is unmatched by any part of the human body. Like a bit sets the course for a horse, and like the rudder sets the course for a ship, Our tongues set the course for our lives. Our lives are steered by our words. We use words to navigate our lives. We use, our our whole life tends to move in the direction of what we say. The direction of your marriage depends largely on how you use your words. The maturity and growth of your children depends largely on what you say. A student's growth depends on the words of her teacher. A church stands or falls on the words of a few. With the power of the tongue, Billy Graham called thousands upon thousands to repentance and faith. And with the power of the tongue, Hitler deceived a nation. This little four-inch muscle in our mouth has been responsible for so much good and so much evil across human history. So James warns us, don't underestimate the power of your words. And this warning, if you jump back to verse 1, is applied to all Christians, but one especially aimed 
at those who aspire to be teachers of the Bible. Look at verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers. Who are these teachers that James is warning? Well, we know they're not false teachers because of this little phrase, my brothers. This is an affectionate, familial, pastoral term that James always uses when he's speaking to Christians. In fact, this is a term that we see across the Bible that reminds us that we've been adopted by our Heavenly Father, and therefore we are all spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ and part of God's family. So he wouldn't use this term to talk about false teachers. Rather, it appears James is speaking and warning to people in the church who want to become teachers of the Bible. It's a warning to aspiring teachers. Now, we have to be careful, though, because James is not saying that no one should teach. God has always given his people teachers of his word. When God wanted to speak to his Old Testament people, he sent the prophets. God sent Jesus Christ, who is called the Word of God, and he came teaching and preaching. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to members of the congregation to be used to teach the people what God has said to build up the church and to edify it. The Apostle Paul, before he was executed, some of his last words before he died was to a younger pastor named Timothy, and he said, preach the word. The church is founded on the preaching of the gospel. The church is built up and edified by the teaching of God's word. Where the teaching goes, the church goes. There is nothing more important in the church than the faithful teaching of what God has said. So James isn't saying don't teach. He's saying listen up, aspiring teachers. Tread very lightly, because by teaching God's word, you are playing with fire. So why should not many teach? Well, he tells us in verse 1, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Ugh. What's going on here? I thought that Christians were saved from God's judgment. Yes, that is true. That is, that is our great hope. That is clear across the Scriptures that Jesus came, that he stood in our place, that he took upon himself the very judgment of God that we deserved and that all those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ are safe and spared from the judgment of God and instead receive just an abundance of mercy. However, that does not mean that there will not be an evaluation of our lives before the Lord. I think James here is speaking of an end-time evaluation of a Christian's life. And this is what one of James' main points in the letter, right? That that Christianity is not only about right doctrine. It's not only about good deeds. Christianity is about right doctrine that produces in us good deeds and godly speech. If you wanted to summarize the letter, that might be a good place to start. Christianity is about right doctrine that affects our head, right? That produces in us a desire, it affects our hearts to do good deeds for the glory of God and to speak godly things. James has been teaching us that our Christian lives matter. What we do in the name of Christ has eternal consequences. 
Our good deeds do not save us and never could. But as we learned last week, our good deeds done for the glory of God reveal and demonstrate that we have been justified, that we have been saved. So I think this verse is saying that teachers get an even closer examination for what they say. All of our words will be evaluated before the Lord, but the teacher's words kind of come under the microscope. Much is given, much is required. Greater responsibility, more scrutiny. Teaching God's Word is dangerous. Think of all the thousands of people that have been deceived and hurt throughout the centuries by wrong teaching, or just the the thousands of people across the globe that have been deceived and duped by the prosperity gospel. How many dear saints have been hurt because a pulpit has been abused? Teacher's words are very powerful. As a teacher of the Bible, this verse scares me, and it should. And all those who aspire one day to teach God's Word, it should warn us. It's very sobering. On behalf of the other pastors here, can I just ask you, the congregation, to be praying for us regularly, that the Lord would would sanctify our mouths and keep us from saying anything that is unwise or false. And pray especially for our senior pastor, Cody, who has the responsibility to teach us up to 40, 45 times a year what God has said. He puts himself in harm's way to teach us the Bible. So on behalf of the congregation, thank you, brother, for your service to us, and thank you for putting yourself at risk to teach us the Bible. You all can serve your pastors very well by praying that the Lord would keep us from the evil one and sanctify our hearts and purify our lips so whatever is said from this pulpit is truthful and wise. And by praying those things, you're also serving yourself, and that is good. So, our words are powerful. And because the teachers use their words to tell others what God has said, they'll be judged more strictly, evaluated with more scrutiny. That doesn't mean the rest of you are off the hook. James moves from teachers to everyone in verse 2. Look at verse 2. All of a sudden, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. Do me a favor. Will all the perfect people in the room just please stand up? Of course, now I'm realizing I'm the only one standing. I, I can assure you if I, would, if I had a chair, I would be sitting. You get my point. None of us have perfectly tamed our tongue. No one's perfect. And if we had been able to tame the tongue, since it's the hardest thing to tame, then we would have been able to tame our whole bodies. But we've all abused the power of speech. The gift of speech, it's such a gift from the Lord, the ability to communicate. It could be used for so much good. But we all have stumbled in many ways. I think if... You know, we, we, if we were to list out all of our regrets in life, many of them would be things that we have said. We've all said things that we wish we could take back, and they're probably running through our minds at this very moment. 
Proverbs 12, 18 kind of summarizes this nicely. It says, there is one whose harsh words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And there it is right there, the power to heal, the power to pierce. I don't know about you, but I so want to be the kind of person that uses my words to heal. That's how the Lord intends them to be used. If you ever had that wonderful experience of, of sitting down with just a wise, seasoned, mature Christian who just listens intently to what's going on in your life and then very carefully speaks words that heal, it's as if with a few words they have shined light on the darkness of your life. They've parted the cloud and allowed you to see heaven itself. Shouldn't we want to be that kind of person? Don't we want to be that kind of church body, known for how we use our words to heal? Don't we want to be known for that in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods? So next time we go to open our mouths, we should ask ourselves, is this a thrust of the sword Or is this a healing balm? Our words are powerful. Because they're powerful, they're also dangerous. This is the next section. James moves from the power of the words to the danger of our words. Warning number one, don't underestimate the power of your words. Warning number two, don't overestimate your ability to control your words. Look at verse five. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Strong, strong leg wrench from, from James, right? It, it's biting. It's if, it's if James has, has pinned us down in a submission hold with his words, and he's going to hold us there until we get his point. Our words are out of control and dangerous. And again, he uses two illustrations to make his points. Our tongue is like an uncontrollable fire and an untamable animal. In June of 2011, two men walked away from their campfire in an Arizona wilderness. They forgot to clear away the flammable material. And this small campfire grew to be one of the largest wildfires in United States history. It consumed over 530 acres and cost over, uh, it accumulated about $100 million worth of damage. Small spark, big fire. Families, churches, nations are like dry forests just filled with flammable material. Just a slip of the tongue, a small spark can spread and cause a tremendous amount of devastation and destruction. And I don't even think I have to try that hard to prove this point. Because sadly, we've all been both the victims and the perpetrators of sinful speech. Our words, they can be so incredibly sinful. 
And when we open our mouths and let out hurtful, sinful speech, it's as if the very fires of hell have come out and burned people. An angry reply, small spark, big fire. A condescending tone, small spark, big fire. Cruel name-calling, small spark, big fire. I want to address the husbands and the fathers in the room for a second. Brothers, please know that what I'm about to say comes from a very humble place in my heart. I'm just going to say it. I want to be clear, so I'm just going to speak to you very directly. We will answer to the Lord for how we speak to our wives and our children. A small fire spreads and leaves behind its charred remains, and if we are not wholeheartedly committed to our God, we will burn our families with our words. And there's your family, a group of charred people because of what you have said. Be warned this morning. The Lord wants so much better for us and our families. We need grace desperately. Praise God that he is eager and quick to give it. We need the Lord to sanctify our our hearts and purify our tongues so that we speak words that heal. Gossip. Isn't it sad that we also love a juicy piece of gossip? We like to have the inside scoop on people's lives. We like to hold their dirty little secret. It makes us feel morally superior, maybe even justified in our judgments of other people. Small spark, big fire. Barbara Hughes, in her book, Disciplines of a Godly Woman, has a a, a very uh, good and memorable line about gossip and its evil twin, flattery. She says, gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. It's so destructive. Like a fire, it spreads and it morphs like a horrible game of telephone and it, come, it grows into something it was never intended to be. Gossip robs people of privacy. It destroys reputation. It breaks trust. It creates a culture of suspicion where everyone is wondering who is talking about them. Words, just words. No, small spark, big fire. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We all wish that nursery rhyme were true, but it's a lie. And experience tells us a different story, doesn't it? You can throw a rock at me and the bruise will heal and I'll forget about the pain. But words, they can last. But the Lord would have us use our words for good. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So next time you're about to gossip, ask yourself, will this build this person up? Is this grace or a sword? Our tongue is like an uncontrollable fire, but it's also like an untamable animal. 
Human beings can train killer whales to do backflips, elephants to do handstands, lions to roll over, birds to speak. We have trained all kinds of animals, except maybe the common house cat. But we have trained all kinds of animals. But no one has trained the tongue. Sulo, the bear man, is a local celebrity in his home country of Finland. Sulo is known for taming massive wild brown bears. They actually open up his window and come into his house for breakfast in the morning. They come to him for baths. They let him feed, they let them, uh, him feed their cubs. Sulo is surrounded by thousands of pounds of massive brown bears, and yet he seems to be the one in control. The sad irony is, is that although Sulo has trained and tamed these brown bears, he has yet to tame that four-inch muscle in his mouth. Warning number one, don't underestimate the power of your words. Warning number two, don't overestimate your ability to control your words. Here's James', James final warning. Warning number three, watch out. You speak with a forked tongue. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh and so- water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt spring produce fresh water. We move from the power of our words to the danger of our words to the main reason why our words are so dangerous and evil. Unique among all of God's creation is the human mouth that shoots out opposites. A spring only produces salt water or fresh water. Fig trees only produce figs. Olive trees only produce olives. But from the same place, our mouths, come both praise and and cursing. They're a contradiction. They're duplicitous. You know, all people are made in God's image. That's what he's talking about there in verse 9. Pra- uh, praising the Lord, but then turning around and cursing someone made in God's likeness. All people are made in the image of God. They're uh, distinct from all that God has made as humanity that uniquely bears the image of God. All people were Uh, created to reflect something of the beauty and the character of God himself. God so uniquely identifies with humanity that he became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the perfect image of God. And that's what makes praising God than cursing people so horrible and contradictory. Can you imagine standing in front of someone that you love dearly and then pulling out a picture of them and spitting on it. Or, or, or ripping it up into pieces or crumbling it up in a ball and tossing it into a fire. That would be so disrespectful. You know, so it is when we curse people, and he's not talking about swear words, he's talking about anything we say that's harmful or sinful to another person. You know, when we do that with our mouths to someone made in God's image, it's like standing in front of Jesus and pulling out an image of him and, and disrespecting it right to his face. You know, during the service, we sing praises to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And on the way home, we say, stupid, stupid, stupid is the guy who just cut me off. 
At nine o'clock, we sing praises with our brothers and sisters, but at noon, we can gossip about the same people with whom we have just sung. We get up early to pray before work, and then by one o'clock, we've lied to make a sale. We read our Bibles in the morning and then hurt someone at the breakfast table with our words. And we see James, he's just lamenting this. Look at verse 10. Just, brothers, this should not be. I hear just humble, pastoral words from James here. That's his tone. It's not self-righteous. Back in verse 2, James has said we all stumble in many ways. James knows that he too speaks with a forked tongue. And he's so grieved and he's so frustrated by it. And once again, here we are in the letter of James, and he's held up a mirror to our face, and we see ourselves clearly, and we all have blood on our hands. And we can all say with the prophet Isaiah, I am a person of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When's it going to stop? When will I stop hurting people I love with my words? Who will tame my tongue? When will I never curse and only praise? Our tongues, uncontrollable, untamable, contradictory. But why? Why? Is there something inherently evil about the tongue itself? That's not the case. The tongue only lets out what is inside. The tongue is the megaphone of the heart. Our speech is like a talon poker. You know, if you're not careful, you'll give away your hand with a posture or a tick. Our speech is the tell. It gives away our heart. When we open our mouths, we show our hand. Our speech is like an x-ray. When we speak, it allows people to see past the tissue to what's inside our hearts. In this passage, James is discussing the problem of bad fruit. But Jesus takes us deeper. Jesus goes to the root of the problem, and he helps us make sense of our wild mouths. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 6? It's to your left. It should be around page 1020, 1030 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 Here, Jesus connects our words with our heart. He connects the fruit and the tree. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. Listen to the words now. They're very familiar that we've heard in James. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Here's the important part. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. How do you know if a tree is good? Check the fruit. Good fruit, good tree. Bad fruit, bad tree. Sinful words, sinful heart. Divided words, divided heart. Our words 
uh, reveal the inward condition of our hearts. They let out what is inside. In the, in the Bible, the heart is the inward part of who we are. It's where our wills and our ambitions and our longings and our desires come. It's the very seat of, our, of where we worship. And I've heard, I'm sure you've heard the expression, you know, she has a good heart. And we understand we're not talking about the health of her organ. We're making a statement about who she is at her core. Right? That's what the heart is in the Bible. It's the core. It's the us wills, ambitions, longings, desires. So Jesus is saying that our words make the inward hidden condition of our hearts known. Our words are the bad fruit that reveal that the tree is bad. So why are our tongues uncontrollable, untamable, and evil? Because our hearts are. Why do we speak with a forked tongue? Because we have a divided heart. If you're going to understand Christianity, you have to understand how Christianity diagnoses the human problem. To quote a a phrase you'll hear in a lot of popular Christian books, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Whereas other religions focus on uh, external rituals and behaviors and offer behavioral solutions to the human problem, Christianity offers a diagnosis that goes far deeper. In Christianity, sin is not merely the naughty things that we do. Sin is who I am. It's the nature. Sinners do sinful things. My operating system has a virus. I just don't need a tune-up. I need a new engine. I don't need new plumbing. I need a new well. There's something wrong with my heart, and I can try and try and try, but it will never be enough because I don't need fundamentally behavioral modification. I need a new heart because this one is persistent in doing evil. But the only thing more persistent than the human sinful heart is the grace of God found in the gospel. Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh to die for sinners. And this incarnate word was pinned to the cross, not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Because of the death of Christ, we can turn our mocking into praying, our scoffing into repentance. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. It is through the gospel that Jesus claims his great victory over our wild tongues. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he so changes our hearts so that they are unleashed to praise the name of Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians about the exalted Jesus who claims victory over the human tongue. 
He said that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And all of God's redeemed will gather around him and they with their mouths will declare him as their Lord. Finally, holy speech. Who will tame my tongue? The Lord will tame my tongue. He snatches back for himself people gripped by sin and mouths and hearts gripped by sin to praise the name of his son forever. And as we close this morning, I want to give you a glimpse behind the curtain so that you can see how our tongues will be used forever. Just listen, you don't have to turn there. This is Revelation 7. A peek behind the curtain to the future. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if this is the holy speech that we will utter throughout eternity, well then let us today, by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, make every effort to make our words pleasing to our Lord and gracious and loving to one another. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, great Father, We praise you for your forgiving mercies. Forgive us of our sins and sanctify us until that day when with tame tongues we will praise your name with one voice. For Christ's sake we ask in Jesus' name, amen.